Hello and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go? The podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues, coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide. Should I stay or should I go? Before we begin with today's segment, I'd like to introduce our new sponsor. Hi, this is Patrick O'Neill, founder of Red Hand Advisors, a risk management technology consulting and advisory firm. We help Fortune 1000 clients understand their risk technology needs and then identify and optimize the best solutions. Recently, a client asked us to help them replace their current risk management information system. This is a very common request. During our initial analysis, we discovered that while their current system was not meeting their needs, it wasn't for a lack of capabilities. We learned that during the implementation, lower priority items were deferred until after the implementation and never revisited. Additionally, and a more common issue we see, is that their priorities had changed over time, but the system had not changed to meet these new priorities. And finally, we identified new features of the system that were not currently being utilized. I am joined today by Joe Pizer, who is Executive Vice President and Global Head of Broking for Willis Towers Watson. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Great to have you, Joe. And I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. You have a very unique background as compared to a lot of the other guests that I've had in that, you know, you are 100% on the broker side and, and very entrenched in the broking side of the business, which we'll talk quite a bit about. I guess, you know, we can start like I start with most of my other episodes on uh, how you got into the business and what some of your early career positions were. I fell into the business, and I'm sure that's not the first time you heard that, Mike. No, it's not. <laughs> I think people are either either fall into the business or are born into the business. It's rare, although maybe not so much anymore, but in my day, it was rare for people to select the business. So I fell into the business. My original plan was I was going to go to law school, and I did my junior year in college abroad, and I did not take the LSAT in time. So when I came back, I knew I had to do something for a year while I prepared to go to law school. So I just interviewed with companies who came onto the campus of my college and Johnson and Higgins, an insurance broker was one of those companies. And I promise you when I signed up for the interview, I thought I was signing up for an interview with a stock brokerage firm. <laughs> Job description was I uh, use terms like risk finance and offshore companies and private brokerage. And I don't remember the word insurance in there at all. I was actually interviewing for a captive feasibility job. You know, this was before the days of the internet. So you couldn't look up the company and as a private company, there was no information on them. So uh, like I said, I thought it was a stock brokerage firm, but uh, I did join j and joined primarily because I really enjoyed the people who I interviewed with, and I thought it would be a 
great way to spend a year or two. And I'm still here 35 years later. So <laughs> oh, look at that. Pretty amazing. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, back in the days when they didn't have the internet, you know, and you think about some of the typical interview questions you have for these, for these positions, you know, starting with, you know, what do you know about the company? That must have been an interesting one for you. Well, you know, it's funny. What happened is that the day before I interviewed with a company called Frankel, right, who uh, purchased by one of the other brokers. In that interview, the interviewer told me all about the insurance brokerage business. So when I showed up for the Johnson and Higgins interview, I actually knew a fair amount just from that one interview. I kind of got away with it. Wow. Well, good for you. But let that be a lesson to all the people out there who don't understand the value of taking an interview for informational purposes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So what was your first job? So my first job was I worked in JNH's National Casualty Office, sort of like a national casualty practice. And I was a spreadsheet jockey. So I worked for five senior people. This was 1986. So at that time, Marsh had just formed Ace and XL, who are still around today, as we know. Ace is now Chubb and XL is now AXA XL. At the time, they were brand new companies. And JNH, as a competitor of Marsh, wanted to do similar innovative projects. Uh, they, in fact, did. That group formed a company called Coda, which was the first DNO facility at the time. It was a DNO mutual. It was ultimately purchased by Ace, and they also formed another DNO facility called Eric, became Irma, which uh, also sort of still exists in different forms today. And uh, I was the kid who ran the spreadsheets. So that was my first job. After two years, they sent me to London, where I spent a one-year program actually at Willis, because at the time, J&H and Willis were partners. I spent a year going from department to department and learning how the London market worked, which was really a milestone in my career. It was extremely enlightening, extremely fun to see the marketplace of London and to see the global breadth of our business. And to this day, there are people who, at the time, they were kids too, who are now senior leaders at various Lloyd syndicates and insurance companies, et cetera, who I've known since those days. After, after that, I was sent to Bermuda to, again, le learn the Bermuda insurance market. Once I came back from there, the Willis-J&H partnership ended when Willis purchased Caroon and Black, and J&H started its own, own London broker and sent me back to London to help work at that new London broker. So I had a lot of great broadening experiences very early in my career. When that finished... I then landed in the New York casualty department of Johnson and Higgins. And the leader at that time said to me that he acknowledged I had had great experience in the first five years of my career, but it was time to really learn something, uh, really learn the casualty business and spend five, six, seven years doing just that. And at the time, Mike, that seemed like an eternity to do the same thing for five to seven years, but that's in fact what I did. And that too was a real pivotal experience because I really learned one line of business in great depth. I think most of us in the brokerage world grow up in a line of business. It could be property, could be DNO, could be aviation. Mine was casualty. And really learning that line of business 
gives me an appreciation as an executive who's responsible for multiple lines of business, gives me an appreciation for the complexity that exists in each line of business. So it really was, um, I guess in a way, my career was a little bit backwards. Most people have broadening experiences later on in their career. I was very fortunate to have it early in my career and then to dive deep into one subject for quite a while. So you could really appreciate then the value of having a broader outlook on what you're doing and how all the pieces fit together, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. I think it's important. It's been important for me to be a student of the business, to really understand our business, to read about it, to follow the ins and outs of what's happening in the business. I mean, our business touches so many parts of the global economy. I just find it endlessly fascinating. So having a view and keeping my eyes open to how our industry impacts different parts of the world, I think I do think it's invaluable. You know, I say to new people, we, we have interns and we have graduates who just start, and I often get the chance to talk to them. And I say, well, most people who aren't in the insurance business think the insurance business is boring. I don't know why that is. I, I suspect it's because everyone associates insurance with auto insurance or homeowners insurance. Uh, I, I don't know why it is. But in fact, the corporate insurance is, is, is absolutely fascinating. And I challenge them. I say, look at every single headline in world events. And there's an insurance angle to it. COVID-19, a huge event in insurance. The civil unrest from the George Floyd incident big property event, every cyber breaches left and right, every natural catastrophe has a big insurance angle to it. Mergers and acquisitions, construction, all of it. I think it's not only important to keep an eye on the broad perspective of our business, but it makes it more fun. You know, It makes it fascinating. Somebody said to me when I was interviewing for my first job that insurance people tend to be those who have the most to say at cocktail parties because we deal with so many different parts of the world. <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> Insurance people. <laughs> the life of the party. Just going back to how I fell into the business, you know, when I was choosing who to interview with, what companies to interview with, I didn't know what I wanted to do if I decided to stay in business. Uh, you know, again, my original plan was to go to law school. But if I were to go into business, I didn't know what business to go into. So I wanted to work for a service business that dealt with other businesses so I could learn more about other businesses and then select. That's what's been absolutely fascinating about the insurance business is dealing with so many different types of companies and organizations across the globe. It's really, it, it genuinely is endlessly fascinating. It's really interesting that you put it that way. You know, when I think about my own personal career, I went to school for human resources and I was a human resources major. And I also thought it would be neat to get a job actually as a recruiter to be able to get exposure to lots of other businesses and see how their HR functions were set up and such. And so I found it also really, really fascinating to see how all these other companies operated. But, you know, uh, like you, uh, I, I ended up staying in the business I was using as my uh, sort of a test case <laughs> job. Right. When you were talking about all the different events that have a, an insurance impact, I was thinking about, you know, some of the big product liability cases that have come along over the years. And 
and J&Js had their share of product liability issues. It must have been really, really interesting to work with them. They were one of your clients, were they? They were. Um, back when I was at Johnson Higgins, I was J&J's casualty broker and then for a number of years was the overall client executive while still being their casualty broker. So client executive is the role that is responsible for the entirety of the client, you know, all their lines of business across the world. And yeah, J&J was and is a great company. And my experience working with the then risk manager, who was a real pro and well-known in the business, I probably learned more from him about our business than any single individual. So you could see how valuable that is to work with the right people. Yes. And you know, one thing about our business is it's so broad and so complex that nobody has the answers to every question. So I think it's important to keep an open mind and learn from people. Virtually everybody in this business has something they can teach me about it. And staying interested and staying teachable, I think is really important. And that's a great point. Great point. A lot of people that I talk to talk about having, you know, intellectual curiosity and, you know, really wanting to understand you know, how things work around them, not just what's affecting their own day to day, but how all the pieces fit together. When you think about, you know, the moves that you've made in your career and the skills that you've developed, what advice would you have for, uh, for someone who aspires to one day be in your shoes? Well, one is to jump at any opportunity to broaden your experience. You know, if you have the opportunity to work abroad, take it. If you have the opportunity to take on another account, even though you feel you're too busy, take it. That's how I think people learn in our business. But the other skill that I think is important, and it's kind of an overused word today, but it's still the right word, and that's that's empathy. When I look at the various roles in our business, you have the role of the client, typically a risk manager, you have the role of the broker, and you have the role of the underwriter. So that tripod is really the, the crux of our business. And I think it's important to have empathy for each one of those roles. So as a broker, I think it's important to have empathy for clients to try to understand what their day is like and what they're going through, and also to have similar empathy for underwriters. I've had experience in my career, even though I've been a broker primarily for my career, I've actually had experience on the client side and the underwriting side. My first experience on the client side was early in my career, I was about five years in, I was asked to temporarily work at a client's office to fill in for a number two risk manager. And that was a big mining company. It was a very formative experience, those, those three or four months, because I got to sit in the chair and understand what a risk manager's day is like. And it's a stressful day. They have a lot coming at them and they're extremely dependent upon their broker for information, for answering questions, for simple but important things like certificates of insurance and automobile ID cards that keep the businesses rolling. So I got to learn firsthand the need to really communicate a lot with our clients. If they ask a question, you know, get back to them. Uh, if it's taking you a while to get the answer, let them know that so they don't feel it's gone into a black hole. Later on in my career, I was a full-time outsourced risk manager, so I, I got to experience that more in depth, but that first experience was really formative. And then I ran an MGA business, Mike, before I joined Willis. So it was you know, in the latter half of my career, but 
I got to understand what it's like to be an underwriter. And here again, I found it interesting and disconcerting how much as an underwriter, I depended upon information from the broker. I depended upon accurate information on their clients, but just as important, I really depended upon the broker to know their client, know the client's objectives and what, what kind of deal would be a winning deal. And I was really dependent on the, on the broker. And I could feel when the broker stopped communicating that a deal was gone south. And, and it was frustrating because perhaps there was more that I could do. So I always urge the brokers who work for me to over communicate with their underwriters. Don't just let communication die out. So those underwriters are dependent on you. And then if you communicate with them, even if they don't win the deal, they're going to remember that. One thing that's very true about our business, Mike, is that the next day comes and the next deal comes and the next one after that, and we're dealing with the same people and they need to uh, trust. We need to trust each other. The underwriter needs to trust the broker. The client needs to trust the broker. It's really being trusted and being trustworthy is really important. And a lot of that comes from just having empathy for where the other person sits and what their day is like and, and over-communicating. Yeah, and I guess what goes part parcel to that is having credibility when you're communicating. Absolutely true. I'll go back to something I said before. Nobody has all the answers in our business. And I always tell people, especially younger brokers or you know brokers who are newer to the business, the worst thing you can do, the absolute worst thing you can do is make up an answer or guess. If you don't know the answer, tell the, whether it's the client who's asking a question or an underwriter who's asking a question, tell them you don't know and you'll get back to them. That's how you build up credibility. Then go get the answer and learn it and, and deliver it. Good advice. We're back with Pat O'Neill from Red Hand Advisors, continuing his story about his recent client engagement. After completing our needs analysis and system review, instead of recommending a new system, we proposed a plan to improve the usage of the existing system. Once we had agreement on the key priorities and desired results, we served as a liaison between the existing vendor, ensuring that both sides understood the goals and objectives and saw the project through to completion, saving the client significant time, aggravation, and money and thus avoiding going down the path of scrapping their current system and going through a lengthy implementation. To learn more about Red Hand, just visit our website at redhandadvisors.com forward slash key and be sure to download your free copy of the Rimmis Report. It's got a wealth of great information. You must be on a regular basis dealing with clients who are feeling a bit of stress about the current state of the insurance market. One thing I wanted to touch on partly from my own information and partly for for the listeners. You know, what's really driving this particular hard market? And is it any different than other hard markets? It is different. You have to go back to the mid-1980s to find a similarly hard market because this is a hard market where prices are going up, but capacity is disappearing. Hard markets are, you know, our business is supply and demand but the cycle is driven by supply. So the demand for insurance tends to be pretty constant over time, but the supply changes. And the supply is changed by catastrophes that wipe out capital or the voluntary withdrawal of capital from our business. And we're very much experiencing the latter. 
So prices are going up, capacity is dramatically down. And the reason that capacity is dramatically down is because of loss activity. We are going through an era where there's just been a systemic change in loss experience. If we look at the property side of our business, year after year now, we're seeing more and more natural catastrophes. Look at this year, Mike. We've had more hurricanes than, than ever. We've had more named storms land on the shores of the United States than ever. We've been fortunate that they haven't caused massive destruction like some others, but that's, that's luck. There's other natural catastrophes as well. We see the wildfires in California. We see more typhoon activity in Asia. And many point to climate change as a systemic change in risk. Then we see very decided uptick in man-made property losses. Those are fires, boiler machinery losses, et cetera. Over several years now and across the globe, not just in the US, it's debatable what's causing that. Some point to the rise of private equity and more short-term financial thinking, and there's lack of investment in maintenance and training, et cetera. That, that could be true. But what is definitely true is there's more fires and more boiler machinery losses than ever. Then when we look at the liability side of the business, the severity of liability losses is pronounced and it's real. So we're seeing automobile liability losses, both verdicts and settlements in the eight figures, even nine figures. I mean, it's incredible what's happening. Then we see a doubling in the number of shareholder class actions on the DNO side of our business with no change in the average loss. So if you have a doubling of the number of class actions, but the same average loss, you can do the math, you know, that, that's a massive increase in loss activity. What a risk manager needs to do is understand their own loss activity, understand the measures that they've taken internally to address those losses so that they can differentiate themselves and their company from those macro trends. If they don't, if they haven't had these plans in place, they need to get a plan and they need to work with a broker or a consultant to get a plan to attack these exposures and make themselves different than the macro trends and articulate that plan to their underwriters so that they can drive a better renewal result. It's the risk managers who don't have a plan that are suffering in this hard market. Now, everyone is suffering a bit, but the ones who don't have a plan are the ones who are finding that they, they can't even renew their capacity. That's a great point. I've, I've had this discussion a number of times recently with clients who are very upset about the hard market and they're holding their risk managers responsible for this. So the conversation that I have goes into what they think the risk manager should have been able to do about this and how strong a strategic relationship the risk manager has with the C-suite. And it's been very eye-opening. Yes, I've dealt with quite a number of clients at the C-suite level, particularly in this hard market. Often when things are not going well, the single biggest complaint I hear from treasurers, CFOs, CEOs is the surprise, that they weren't aware that things were as bad as they were. Now, that could be bad communication from the broker. That could be bad communication from the risk manager. It could be bad communication from both. But one thing that the C-suite hates is surprises. 
early starts and early information about market conditions to the C-suite is absolutely critical. I've seen, unfortunately, a number of cases recently where risk managers have been fired due to bad expectations. I've seen a treasurer get fired because the board of directors was unaware that things were as bad as they were in terms of pricing. Again, same theme, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. So when you say early, I'm just curious, how early are you talking about? I'm saying to clients that they need to start their renewal process six months in advance. In normal times, we would say three months in advance. I think we need to double it. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of information that needs to be gathered. You can't rely on what you were asked during the soft market. Underwriters are asking for a lot more information. In addition, because of the withdrawal of capacity, Mike, it takes more and more underwriters to fill out a program. So that means more and more conversations with underwriters. And you can do those effectively using video conferencing, but that takes time. The good risk managers are having those video conferences through their brokers with underwriters across the earth. One of the silver linings about the current work from home environment is that in a way the world got smaller. So we're able to have conversations with underwriters in London, in Europe, in Singapore, pretty easily. We don't have to hop on a plane to go see them. We can have we can have video conferencing and it's very effective, but all of that takes time. In addition, underwriting decisions are very attenuated these days and they've been pulled from, you know, authority has been pulled from the field and many decisions now to overturn an underwriting position have to be made at very senior levels at insurance companies. And, you know, that takes time. I say to large and complex clients, to the risk managers, they need to start each renewal literally six months in advance. That's not surprising to me. And I think as you go through all the steps that you just described, it seems to me that an underwriter is going to feel more comfortable with the risk if they have much tighter and more dependable communication along the way. Absolutely. No question, Mike. Stands to reason. You mentioned that you're having a lot of contact with the CFOs and and the C-suite in general with your clients. I imagine you must have some perspectives on what risk managers can do to improve upon that relationship and be more effective in their roles. Number one, two, and three is is communicate. No C-suite executive likes surprises, particularly bad surprises where prices are going up double, triple digit. But in addition, I think it's The better risk managers, the more strategic risk managers who I work with, don't get caught up necessarily in just what happened the year before and what does my budget look like. Not that budgets aren't absolutely important. I mean, they're critical to the functioning of any business. But when we look at the landscape today, Mike, and we're in a COVID world and a COVID economy, Every single company on the face of the earth has been impacted by this pandemic. Some for the better, most for the worse, right? And I think it's important that risk managers start from the position of what is my company's tolerance for risk? Because a disconnect that I've recently experienced between CFOs and risk managers is risk managers understandably are looking to cut back on limits and take higher retentions and to, to deal with the hard market and deal with the lack of capacity. And I talked to a CFO who is concerned about buying less insurance because 
he or she has a lower tolerance for risk given the economic conditions. So it's really important that risk managers speak the language of their CFO and understand where their CFO or treasurer is coming from when it comes to insurance. Not that there's some magic bullet that just because you know someone wants to buy more limit, it's going to be there. But I've often seen a disconnect between risk managers and CFOs when it comes to tolerance for risk. So I think this best thing a risk manager can do is sort of start from, okay, this is a new world. My company is different today than it was before the pandemic. So I not only have to deal with the market conditions, but I need to deal with what my company is going through. They need to communicate to the C-suite what's going on in the, mar- in the market. They need to make sure they understand their own company's risk exposures that are likely have changed quite a bit because of the pandemic. And then work with their brokers and advisors to make sure that they are articulating those changes to the, to the marketplace effectively. When I think about the disconnect that you're referring to with risk tolerance levels and such, that to me sounds like a symptom of a lack of communication and a lack of being aligned with each other, which is, I guess, also comes back to communication. But, you know, it's, it's not easy. I think, as I've talked to a, a number of risk managers, some of them don't get a lot of time with the C-suite. And it's very short. It's very focused on particular events or, you know, perhaps an update in the market. To me, it seems that if a risk manager is going to have a better impact on the organization, then they have to develop a more consultative relationship with their C-suite. I completely agree with that. And I think they also need to articulate the importance of relationships in our business to the C-suite. The importance of relationships in our business, and here I'm talking about policyholder to the insurer, right? The importance of those relationships are no different than the importance of relationships in banking. And treasurers and CFOs spend a lot of time developing relationships with their bankers. And uh, I would urge them, and I would urge risk managers to urge them to take a similar approach to their insurance company partners who are providing contingent capital and really protect the P&L in the event of a loss, much more so than a banker does. And developing those relationships and cultivating that flow of information between the insured and the insurer is really critical. And I'm seeing it pay dividends today. In the hard market, those companies who have built up those relationships with key strategic insurers are getting better deals than than those who have treated the whole thing like a transaction. I would imagine that the underwriters are more comfortable with the risks that they understand. When you talk about the relationship, it's really having a better appreciation for what's going on in that company. So, you know, you can anticipate what the losses might be. That's exactly right, Mike. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes we confuse or we minimize what we mean by relationships. It's not just, uh, you know, having a nice dinner or playing around the golf. What it really is, is really understanding, giving underwriters the chance to really understand the insured's business and understand the culture of the insured and understand the decision-making process of the insured. And that makes the underwriters typically, it makes them much more comfortable in underwriting the risk. That makes perfect sense. Peter, I actually think we covered everything I wanted to cover with you. And there's a lot of different topics that we could get into. And uh, what I really hope to accomplish was a better understanding of the brokerage business and what it's like from your perspective 
and uh, give people some things to think about. So I think we've accomplished all that. So with that, I'm going to say uh, thank you very much for your time, Joe. It's been great talking with you. My pleasure, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies, LLC, the US insurance and risk management recruitment specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time.